0: You're listening to Oxide Film, written and directed by Matty O'Donovan and Tom Sayre. Hello and welcome to Oxide Film with Tom and Mattie. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Tom. How are you? I'm really, really good. This week is starting very well. It's a nice Monday morning we're recording today. Indeed.
1: Uh, should we jump straight into the film? Let's go for it, yeah.
0: No holds barred. We exactly. went to see Booksmart this week. Yes, uh, directed by Olivia Wilde, her directorial
1: debut. It stars Beanie Feldstein and... Caitlin Dever as the sort of two leads, Molly and Amy, who are a duo of try-hard teacher pets in a high school destined for good things, but realize that they are missing out on the pivotal fun moments of high school. Mm. Should we have a clip from there and we'll go from it? Yeah, exactly.
0: Enjoy a clip from Booksmart. I this energy at my inauguration assembly, folks? True. I, I never have to see any of you ever again,
1: okay?
2: That's it, signing off, go Crockett's. Boom.
1: Principal Brown.
2: Oh. Hi, Molly, Amy, what's shaking? I want
1: to make the transition of next year's student government as seamless as possible so that when I'm up in New Haven. Yale. You can just say Yale, please. Well, our class's official policy is to not discuss where anyone is attending next year. We don't want them to feel insecure.
0: Very
2: thoughtful.
1: Anyway, I need to go over the end of the year budget numbers we have. (sighs)
2: Really? Like, mean, now? I mean, why don't you do it with Nick, you know? Please? I mean, he's, he's you know, he's the vice president. Nick? <laughs>
1: oh! We both know that Nick only ran for VP because they planned the dances. That position is... It's basically a popularity contest. He's useless.
2: Ladies, it's the last day. You know, we did it, huh? We got you through high school. Can't we just graduate? head off to college, you know, celebrate this wonderful achievement. And let's focus on getting through the rest of the day without anything horrible.
0: So that was a clip
1: from Booksmart. As Principal Brown, is played by Jason Sudeikis in a nice little bit world I'm sure that we'll get to. But just to reiterate what I said at the top of the episode, the whole premise here we find is that Amy and Molly are two students who are very much trying hard to follow the rules that have been prescribed to them at school. A realization the day before graduation is that other ch- other kids in their school while having fun has have also got into these top tier universities in america so they realize that they've missed out and they set out for a night of celebration and partying that goes slightly awry but in a very entertaining fashion what were your initial thoughts then, Tom? So,
0: before we go any further, um, I'd love to mention that, yet again, we went to see this film at the Phoenix Picture House in Jericho, in Oxford. Indeed. Um, we'd love to say a big thank you once again to Picture House for giving us complimentary tickets to see this film. We really enjoyed being there. The audience was great, actually. Really nice and full. Again, very comfy place to be. Students out there, 25 quid to get membership, get two free tickets with that, and discounts on food and drink there. So, cannot recommend Picture House highly enough. Thank you so much again, people there, and we'll be back soon, I'm sure. Yeah, seconded, definitely. It was a very packed audience, enjoyed it. And it was a really good
1: experience. Definitely added to the film. Mm.
0: So, right from the start of the film, we have a very self-aware attitude, where Molly's character is listening to a kind of self-help audiobook (laughs) while uh, while taking out her retainer. Um, And it kind of instantly goes into a very attitude-packed opening with the music that we heard in that clip as well, filling every single scene with personality and pulp, basically. And I think, for me, it was a very, very pulpy movie, as we'll get to soon. So, as Matthew said, they basically realised that they need to have at least one night where they have partied at high school and also being people who've worked very hard. And it basically sounds like a film that is going to fall into the traps of coming-of-age movies or comedies that take advantage of high school scenarios but after the first half of the film it just lifts off from that completely and I think the, the film for about 20 minutes lulls you into a full sense of story beat security which it then demolishes by being a really unconventional and vibrant experience that I really enjoyed.
1: I think what makes this film stand out so much is that it's increasingly cine-literate to the genre it finds itself in I mean, I got, you know, echoes of Clueless, Mean Girls, even further back than that, sort of John Hughes's Pretty in Pink's, you know, Sixteen Candles. It knows that the high school genre has been examined to death and it goes, okay, what can we do that's different about this? Why don't we deconstruct the stereotypes that make up the cliques in those films and show characters, high school kids that are genuine people they're not just sort of one dimensional stereotypes to to reiterate it and I think that is a nice realisation that comes across throughout the film's arcs because you sort of are obviously seeing this through Molly and Amy's eyes who are very much these well behaved students but the fun loving students aren't these just evil jocks and cheerleaders they're, they're people themselves and I think this film takes a very even balanced stance on that which is something that you know, you're know you starting to see increasingly more with the genre. I, I, I also thought of The Duff, which came out a few years ago and had a sort of similar smart take, but this film takes it up a few notches.
0: I completely agree with the personality clique stuff. So there's one scene uh, in particular where Molly's in the loo and she's hearing people talking about her and saying that she has no personality and mm-hmm. she just worked really hard and did nothing else. And she thinks this is her chance to have her kind of gotcha caught you moment <laughs> with these people who are not being not very nice to her and say actually well you were partying while i was hard working and going to get job prospects and things and then they turn around and say oh actually i'm going to yale too um, or i'm going to program at google and she's and molly says what but you're you're people who never worked hard never did a day's work in your life and you're the same level as me what's going on and she basically has a existential crisis beyond after that point so it kind of takes one very classic scene of like the the satisfying main character gets her comeuppance against mean people by as you say fleshing them out turning them into people that are not just bullies and all have things going for them and all those characters also reappear later on and they turn out to be really nice people in in, in their own ways importantly really kind and in in one sexual scenario one of them is very you know responsive and and kind and making sure the other person's okay. The other one makes a really good cocktail. Yeah. The other one makes sure that everyone's having a nice time at his house party. Yeah, so, there's so- yeah, there's that
1: pastoral element uh, for sure. And I, uh, I mean, I, I think I was similar to you in the beginning in that I thought, like, for example, when they say that the other students get into the high performing universities like Yale or one of them's gonna go code at Google, I thought they were sort of making a barbed joke slash comment about underachieving your way into these schools because obviously we're seeing this from, through the perspective of people who think that they are underachieving so it is true and I mean you compare this to something like Mean Girls or even the sort of really sharp writing of something like Clueless even that still indulges these cliques and I think that's really nice because when you think about it it's it's more akin to the real world even if someone is part of what you imagine or perceive to be a clique that doesn't mean that determines who they are mm. and I, I think from the get-go this film steps up to mm you know, paved the way in a slightly different respect.
0: And it's a really good sign that this movie is a quality piece of writing that we learn about the supporting characters and their emotions through Molly's experience. So she learns about these people in the bathroom, for example, as I just mentioned, realising that they're not just these one-dimensional people. So, and we learn that at the same time as her and that's crucial because the film is about her learning how to enjoy herself as well as Amy and learning to come out of her shell a bit and that kind of thing. So, the fact that we realise all these supporting characters do something in their own lives and have their own goals and dreams is something that Molly realises and we are going on the journey with her in the film and that's what it wants to achieve. So it's for sure. And so what
1: propels the narrative after this is the quest to get to Nick's party. It's always a monosyllabic jock name. (laughs) Even this film can't help but indulge in some stereotypes. But essentially, Molly and Amy are setting out to get to this party to prove to their fellow peers at the high school that they are fun-loving and they go on a sort of ragtag wild adventure that sees them go through several different parties which are often hosted by a smattering of the people that we see at the beginning sort of other classmates and what is at the crux of what later leads to the confrontation between molly and amy is that molly in of herself is very pushy very insistent she she's the one propelling them forward whereas amy though you know supportive of her friend, is a bit more reticent. She sees that they're having entertaining rides as they're getting to this party. They think, let's stop it here. And at the root of her storyline is one of a first, first sexual experience because it, this film doesn't really deliberate or talk too much about the fact that Amy is openly out. Um, they, they sort of just get past it and they move on to her having her sort of first romantic involvement with this girl, Ryan. And that's sort of the essence
0: of why she wants to get to the party so what did you think of this sort of romance Mm. so I often have struggles with defining sexuality in terms of in terms of desire in movies and the question for me often becomes whether you can whether you can ever separate it from the fact that it's used as a kind of hook for the audience to be appealed by someone's sexual thoughts if that makes Mm -hmm. sense but I think with this movie because it is so self-aware and and does things to make you feel like the characters are doing what they would do in real life it moves past the awkward humor of her not being able to interact with this person properly because she's crushing on her to it being a human thing instead of a film comedy thing because i think that there are lots of films that basically use sexuality as an a part of appeal for the film not as a display of humanity, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think generally the film has a really well-defined female sexuality, and there are lots of different scenes which which display that, uh, as we'll come to later on. But the involvement with Ryan goes quite well, and also because the um, sexual orientation is dealt with, without any weird pointers to look how progressive we're being. No, it's, it, it's
1: definitely not preachy. I exactly,
0: think. yeah, because it's only ever something that is just with the character from the very beginning and it's just like you know slipped in there every so often in wholesome jokes between the two uh, main characters Amy and Molly and, the, and that kind of thing so yeah like you say not preachy is part of the film but doesn't come with a fanfare no definitely and and I think that for for instance Amy's character is
1: deliberately shown to be socially aware and that feeds into her humor and makes her a more affable person and I think what is thematically central to a lot of the characters is this idea that, you know, it's tried and tested, but don't judge a book by its cover. These ideas of the images that we project aren't accurate to who we actually are. So if that pertains to sexuality, then there's sort of a, an assumption that Ryan, her desired interest, is also, um, you know, sexually attracted to women. She, she, They assume she's a lesbian. And spoilers it's revealed that's not the case, as we'll discuss later on. But the point being is that that's one of many different character beats in which we realise, as we said at the start, that these characters aren't what they are superficially to everyone else. And I think this setting of a high school is where those things get examined most acutely. And for someone like Amy, who's very sincere and outright in what her personality is, even if Molly is the more assertive of the two, that really works to its benefit.
0: Um, so I think, as you mentioned before, that basically, yeah, the, the cross of the film is the journey to this next party. Mm-hmm. And they end up at different parties by accident um, before they get there. And so we have these vignette scenes of arriving at Jared's boat and then later on a um, murder mystery party. So,
1: so, so Jared is a sort of really, really try-hard socialite who wants people to love him and he sort of does it through his wealth and sort of his realisation across the film is of course, you know, money can't buy you happiness or friends, but of course the party that they go to is a, a cruise ship with no one on it, and uh, and it is, there's this amazing scene where like all of the staff keep offering Molly and Amy the only guests like food like, would you like an appetiser? and they're like, go, leave me alone, which I
0: loved so on the boat as well is Billy Lord's character Gigi, who is this maniacal girl, who doesn't we never quite work out why she's so odd, um, but she, she's drugged up. Yeah, yeah. So I think she's going out with Jared, uh, and they're, they're, there's a joke in Jared's car where they find her tin of special things. And Jared says that it's her crushed up vitamins that she likes snorting because apparently they work better that way. Yeah. But obviously, we never quite believe him. Um, and she tries to get the two girls, Amy and Molly, to stay on the boat and enjoy themselves. And she jumps off the, t- the roof of the boat because she's high yeah. um, and offers them and they have a couple of like, um strawberries with her which we think are just strawberries but later on provide one of the funniest scenes in the film yeah. um, so the boat scene is, is revealing because Jared is like yeah as you said this guy who is absolutely desperate to try and make friends and there's a scene earlier in uh, the class with Miss Fine who's Amy and Molly's favourite teacher and he shows up and says, hi, basically like says hi and Miss Vine's like you're not even in this class here. <laughs> yeah. um, she doesn't even go here <laughs> yeah. but but the funny thing is that Jared is really lovable he's actually yeah. lovely yeah. Um, and he kind of his performative personality is actually hilarious and like not in the way that it's desperately sad but just because I think he's actually quite funny yeah. and if he wanted to make friends he could with just a few easy tweaks that he does learn later on yeah. Um. so again it goes back to this thing of like all the supporting cast have their own goals and desires that are really well communicated without having to launch stuff into the script that tells you that really quickly. Um, It just, they make sure to set up the film at the high school physically with all these people, you know, in the corridors and announcing themselves with their loud personalities. And we know they're going to feature later in the film by virtue of them being set up, Mm -hmm. but but it never feels forced.
1: Yeah, and I think the term communicative is really really accurate because you know we don't actually spend that much time in the high school we have the scene at the beginning then we have the graduation at the end and you know Chekhov's gun always says oh something's going to happen later you you know the setup is naturally how we expect things to turn out later on but you're right it's in a way that doesn't feel forced you aren't compelled to go look at this character right now there's something big that's going to happen with them happen with them later in sort of lesser films and I, I, really, really like that because it, it, you're right. It feels organic. It feels like you're, you're having these realizations at the same time the characters are. You don't have some kind of, you know, dramatic irony moment before Molly or Amy has a uh, realization, and that's the sign of good storytelling. But also, you have to balance it
0: because you don't want to get to the point where you're like, well, who's that character? Mm-hmm. I don't. Uh, and I think the film film nails that yeah and I think um, in basically the first and second acts um, I felt like I wasn't being engaged because I felt like I'd seen it all before and as I've said it really just shakes itself out of its own genre defining labels and the characters do that as well by definitely avoiding all these stereotypes. But the great thing about this film is that it needs to be really fast and it needs to have no holds barred. Mm-hmm. And it is that. It, it never slows down. It's breakneck speed. There, there's, there's so many things going on in the film, which we, we could, we won't go into plot details that much, but mm-hmm. only apart from the, the things we want to talk about. Um, but there is so much in there and it's just completely packed with slightly disorientating things that it just keeps throwing things at you. and. It works in the sense of having a hilarious sugar rush of a movie where you're just experiencing all these crazy things and you won't remember all of it, but Mm -hmm. you'll remember the highlights. Um, For me, it was a bit too disorientating to begin with because it just felt like there were too many characters being thrown at me for me to juggle. But because they all get given their own moments, that's all right, I think.
1: Yeah, no, I completely agree in the sense that the first 25 minutes definitely has an element of just blunt force to it in that you're just... Given all of these characters, and you're just expected to process it, and most of them land for me. But you know, I think one of the weaker spots was George and Alan, which are the sort of two thespian uh, arty students, and they have a few good laughs out of their characters, but they're a bit bit tepid. They're not the most interesting, and I think we devote a quite a bit of time at the beginning with them and their relationship and interactions with Molly and Amy, which are obviously quite
0: hostile. I agree with you, and, it, and the funny thing is that this is a good conversation to have about queerbaiting, yeah. which I've kind of, I've come to learn a bit more about recently. So I think queerbaiting basically is the idea that you suggest a character's kind of sexuality, and by doing that, involve the LGBTQIAP plus community mm-hmm. by saying, look, we're representing you, but never quite saying that they really are gay or bi or whatever it mm-hmm. is. Um, so with Amy's character, that's completely explicit in a way that works really well yeah. and is functional. And with the two thespian guys, the suggestion is that they're gay, but only by their mannerisms and personalities. Yeah. Um, so I think that is what queerbaiting generally is. Yeah. And I don't have a problem with it in the movie because they don't have to be gay. They don't have, they don't have to have sexuality. There's there's are those personalities. But it feels like that's the one... They, those are two characters that... Are, they're utilising a kind of stereotype that n- never reveals itself to be self-aware enough. I uh,
1: yeah, it's very odd because this film is very sensitive to those issues in a very mature and clever way. So the fact that they kind of indulge in this stereotype is quite intriguing. Uh, this this notion of queerbaiting is, is fascinating because... you're you're right Amy's sexuality is at the at the crux of a lot of this film and they deal with it in a very good way but to do that in such a mature fashion and then sort of only have a cursory glance to these other characters and their sort of personalities of course as you said it's implied but I I feel like this film could have done a bit more with that you know but we we have so many rich character moments for other secondary characters um you'd think that they'd, they'd spend maybe a minute
0: or two more uh, which which wasn't the best what can you um, do? but speaking of those two Thespian characters they then after the boat scene basically Amy and Molly arrive at, at the wrong house by accident and it's the murder mystery party that the two thespine guys have set up mm. and they're given characters to play but then the strawberries that Gigi has given them have kicked in yeah it's some and sort of weird peyote LSD. kind yeah, yeah, of yeah. LSD yeah. LSD uh, laced stuff and they end up in a in a girl's bedroom, and then start believing they're dolls. And there's this hilarious um, stop motion animated scene where they both play little Barbie dolls, and they believe that they're these dolls, and start and have different proportions, obviously. And yeah. they Make a joke out of how ludicrous their body proportions. Their leg are. Their legs just... legs are three times as long as their waist. It was one of the lines yeah, I. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I was thinking actually when I was watching that scene in the cinema, like when Amy especially is kind of attracted to herself and kind of enjoys the sexuality of her body when she's this doll. Um, I first thought, is that a problem? Because is that kind of like buying into the trope of like women being ov- overly sexualized in their own mm-hmm. minds and being like, that's the only thing they're, they're concerned with. But then I thought actually it's very positive because we notice a couple of times before when Amy and Molly see each other in outfits that they've dressed up in for different parties, they're always very positive and, and just supportive of one another mm. and and just keep saying how slain they are by the other. Yeah. So when you know that the film is doing that, when Amy is attracted to herself in this doll's body, mm. it's funny but not a negative portrayal of female sexuality because it, it's clearly Amy being confident enough to to express those things about herself uh, in, in a non-pornographic way.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's caveat this, which is a wholly wacky scene you know, I mean, it, it, it's completely left field in the way that, uh, you know, they depict it. I, I understand that kind of positivity. I think that's something that recurs between the two of them. It, it deepens their relationship beyond just being 2 tryhards, you know. But, I mean, you see that Molly's sort of Dole is very insistent not to get suckered into it, don't succumb to these images. But even she's sort of gravitating in that direction. And it's not, you're right, done in a sort of negative way it's done in a way of like this is a crucible that they're both going through and i really enjoyed it and there's this amazing scene after the stop animation where they're sort of being led out of the house and they're still like really like rigid like they have rigor mortis and they're like walking like they are the dolls so obviously that's how everyone else is seeing them when they're on these drugs and that that, that was lovely as they sort of made their way to uh, the final party
0: yeah so then we reach nick's party the end goal of amy and molly's journey in the film and like i said before this is the moment for so many of the characters that are on the side of the film to show that they have complex personalities so what did you think about how the party went on i enjoyed it of course it was always going to be the third act um
1: Criticisms first. It is very protracted. It goes on for a considerable amount of time, and maybe that's to indicate this is a party that, in which you know, when the dramatic stuff happens, that's not when it ends. Maybe maybe that's a part of the, part of the reason. But sort of the big epiphanies or realizations is, of course, in the first hour or so of this party, they're all celebrating. Everything seems to be going in the right way. Amy is you know gaining the confidence to hang out with um, Ryan, who's obviously her crush. Just before the party, we Sort of, it's revealed to us that uh, Molly is infatuated with Nick, who is the VP, the uh, one who's hosting the party, the one who she considered dumb before. It's sort of a latent subconscious thing that she's actually very much uh, enamored with him. And they're flirting. You, you, and the film does give off an authentic feel that, you know, things are going to go their way. This is how it's going to end. Because they have gone through such a story in which enough has happened for you to think that maybe they could end the film like this. But then there's sort of the sucker punch, which is, I know we've said spoilers before, but I'll say it once again. The big sort of two-pronged reveal is that, for one, Ryan is not interested in Amy, or at least it's indicated that she isn't. And actually she's getting off with Nick. So their two romantic interests have gotten together. And obviously Molly doesn't realise this. Amy is the one to see it. This leads to a big confrontation in which is very much filmed by everyone, and this is the sort of the lowest moment, the lowest ebb. So, what did you think about that confrontation, the big reveal? Yeah.
0: So thinking about it now, actually, it's really uh, skillful to be- make sure that the crux of why Amy and Molly end up having an argument at the party is for one thing. So, you know, they both have their desires crushed, or whatever you want to call it, by one event, as you say, with mm-hmm. both Ryan and Nick getting together. In one event so it, it, it feels less artificial than to have kind of two separate things that both mean that molly and amy end up not having what they want in the party so it works well and because the character the party basically carries on and the mood keeps shifting there's a bit where molly and amy have an argument because as you mentioned before molly is the pushy one and amy you know, hates that and then reveals that she's going to Africa for the whole year, not just the summer. So all their plans are skewed in in Molly's eyes. And eventually Molly curses at her, but the, the audio is faded out at that point. And in this kind of projected argument, they are facing off against each other and... And the music dies down, and we have this very well done sequence where everyone starts recording this argument on their phones around them. And the camera work, as my friend Ben mentioned, who was with us in the cinema, is done really well, where they kind of don't do this, don't do a classic kind of 360 turn around them where they kind of get all the angles and everything, but it's more drunkenly, slightly swaying very slowly back and forth, back and forth between them. And that is a bit like. A, a phone recording as well so it has a very organic it, even though you know it's a cinematic artificial experience there's a very organic notion to it I, I enjoyed the camera work but um this was one of
1: those moments where i didn't think that this would actually happen in real life mm-hmm. i know you said it was a decidedly very modern problem but i don't maybe there's just some kind of disparity between my experience of going to parties and maybe an american one but like filming someone's argument doesn't seem congruent to my understanding so I felt th- I felt it to be a little off I didn't think it added much yeah. especially considering how the
0: legwork this film goes to say these people aren't superficial that aren't fake. and there's this classic thing in comedy where you ha- have this kind of like necessary third act argument between the two main characters for them to have their reunion later on mm-hmm. the emotional reunion um, and there's reasons why they could be frustrated with one another over the film but at that point, for them to have an all out argument where they curse at each other and it's properly serious is, again, maybe not realistic. But it's still, I think it's still operable and it's still very emotionally potent. Um, aside from the argument, though, we have these beautiful moments in the party where the cinematic fantastical element of it is heightened. Um, so there's one moment where Molly imagines being swept off her feet by nick and doing this dance and the lighting is all beautiful there and this other moment which made me weep because of the music chosen which has a very personal connection for me uh slip away by perfume genius it's a beautiful song about kind of allowing your emotions to just take hold of you um and it's a scene where amy strips off and jumped into the pool to try and basically find ryan and then at that point discovers that she is getting together with nick but it's this beautiful moment where she where you do feel like when she jumped into the pool, she is releasing these tensions and stresses inside of her that stopped her from doing this, you know, for the past five years. And
1: and it's definitely not an uncommon trope in, in cinema. I mean, even referring to last week's film, Rocket Man, you have that scene in which he's sort of in the pool looking at a younger version of himself and it always makes me think of um, a really, really famous scene from The Graduate when uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman's character is feeling really overwhelmed he f- goes into the pool to forget about everything it's sort of a dreamlike reverie but it's also um, a form of liberation mm. and I think this film really really yeah. catches that and
0: it was just it was just filmed so beautifully mm-hmm. the, the pool thing it, it yeah. just looked great and you see people's legs flowing about it's gorgeous it's yeah. lovely and, and it is this kind of strange thing about Amy In both the figurative and literal sense she's basically exploring other people's bodies because she hasn't done anything with other people before really but in yeah the pool scene is just great and and the music it fits so well and my final comment will be about the music so hang tight for that but after after that disappointment with Ryan she goes into a bathroom and she's upset and she has an, an argument with this very catty girl who doesn't seem to be who seems really horrible and seems to just be quite cruel mm-hmm. and says she doesn't like meek people. And then after that, mean says, you're just a horrible person who'll peek at high school and then immediately kisses her. Yeah. And then eventually they, they kind of get involved. And what is so well done about that scene is that it's not this kind of like, um, I think it's quite a big trope of sexuality in films where she have parents have an argument and they have kind of ferocious sex yeah. because it's kind of, it's like weird, you know, hate sex. And and, and seamless sex at that, isn't it? Yeah. There? There's no junctures between
1: that first kiss and the, the actual sex yeah. that happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but
0: with this scene, it's very careful because this Cassie girl that doesn't seem to be very nice at all, when they start stripping off and everything, quite a lot of times she's like, are you okay you're feeling all right and this kind of stuff and it was just a really really good message to have in a film for people of high school age to be like even in this elevator's cinematic comedy movie mm-hmm. they're involving a very very explicit version of consent yeah. which was just you don't, you don't really see it very often in movies it, and it's just, it's just well done it's heartfelt I felt it was sex
1: positive and crucially it was genuine you know, and and I, just to reiterate, I did like the point that it, there was an element of fumbling awkwardness to it because that's how it probably should be. No, no one goes into any of those sexual experiences being so well versed. That's that's the whole point, and I think that that's that's what the film really really does strike a good chord with. I know you want to talk about the music. Uh, I will say my sort of thoughts on it before you go into your go gushing. <laughs> um, I loved it. Uh, Soundtracks really need to hit me in a certain way if I'm going to remember them. Otherwise, I feel like they're kind of hackneyed or they're just used for the music's sake. But it felt very pulsating. You had a little Run the Jewels, a bit of Anderson Park, stuff like that. And it, and it speaks to what we were talking at the, the beginning, which was sort of semi-criticism, but also how the film projects itself is that bluntness. It's just like pulsating music that comes at you. I mean, there were a few scenes where I was thinking... This music feels a little bit superfluous. Like they've added this additionally, and it, it, it the scene doesn't really merit it. But overall, I really, really liked it, and it's certainly a soundtrack I'll probably give another listen. And if
0: that's the, you know, threshold for whether or not it's good or not, then mm. then it's hit those marks. Mm. So as I mentioned before, for me, it's quite personal reasons as to why the most beautiful scene struck a chord with me. So Perfume Genius is mm. just this wonderful artist. And I recommend, so the album is No Shape where Slip Away features. We can drop a link. And we we shall, I shall, I shall. But it, it goes far beyond that and, and just the, the hilarious music choices just keep coming. So earlier when Jared's car arrives to pick them up, to take them to the boat party, mm-hmm. they sample a Death Grips song called I've Seen Footage. And mm-hmm. Death Grips, for the thankfully uninitiated, is a sort of weird, crazy industrial hip-hop band that go for these crazy instrumentals and they had no vocals in the film but MC Ride is the vocalist and right. it's just this crazy voice so that was hilarious for that mm-hmm. to be involved as well and as you say run the jewels nobody speak which is a DJ Shadow song featuring them this is why the film feels so pulpy to me and why it feels like that kind of instant classic vibe where all the musical choices even though they're they're, they're used to f- make the mood not to accompany it yeah but that's kind of okay because they just function so well and make sure the film has a blaring personality, which otherwise it really might not have if it were just a more of a quirky comedy with just, you know, more annoying string plucking or whatever. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think it had that kind of
1: Americanized gleam of things like Harmo- Harmony carine Spring Breakers. You have Bling Ring, that sort of in your ness about it. But it does it in a much more elevated way to those other films. And I think the music is something that bridges that gap. Very, very well. Uh, do you want to move on to final
0: thoughts then? Yeah, uh, definitely. W- What was your overall opinion of mm. the film? So basically, as I mentioned earlier, when I was watching it, I wasn't the biggest fan of the first half and thought that it was throwing way too many things at me, thought that I was not going to enjoy it as much as I did later on. And it really is a hodgepodge of different ideas and so many things are jammed into <laughs> it. So end of the day, it's very inventive. But it just has a lot of personality mm-hmm. and that's what you need for a comedy that is going to throw loads of larger than life people at you but it does make sure as we've discussed before that both the main characters, Amy mean Molly and the surrounding characters have very you know, expressible wants and needs that are never drowned by cliches there are moments where the film is drowned by its own artificiality in terms of being overly crazy with it. Mm-hmm. But that is part of the fun, and that's what you're there for. And I think Olivia Wilde, an actress that I've only really seen in such masterpieces as Tron Legacy... Um, Which coincidentally <laughs> has a, a, a banging soundtrack, a yeah, uh, it's, it's, score even to it. Yeah, um, it's, it's Daft Punk um, doing the soundtrack for Tron Legacy from 2011. Um, but for her to smash this out of the park with a directorial debut that has a lot of flair, a lot of charisma... And a lot of pulp to it. It's really impressive. And I'm now that I'm thinking about the film, it was just so much fun to watch. And I left the cinema in such a good mood. And that's what you need.
1: I, I think, for sure, it's a very confident debut. You need that personality if you're going to have a comedy like this to endure. I felt certain scenes were a tad too long. They let them play out a, a bit too much. Uh, it could have done with maybe a slight trimming in terms, in terms of editing of a few of the comedy scenes. I mean, I know there were a lot of belly laughs in our cinema, but... Also, there were some moments where it lulled a bit, uh, but that's that's just nitpicking. That was very minor to the overall project that is the film. As I said at the start of the episode, I think what's really crucial is that it's very cine literate. It knows the genre it's in. I really enjoyed that. I've seen a lot of these films, most of them of uh, the high school variety. So, I think if other films in the genre are going to adapt and innovate, they need to move more in the direction that this one is heading. Where you you take apart those stereotypes you examine why they exist in the first place you look at how those cliques or that perception of a clique in a high school works and why it's so enduring and it owes a lot to what's come before but it's also just very funny mm. and I the last thing I will say is everything comes back round in this film and if, if a film does that well then, it, then I, I usually resonate with it particularly strongly and I think it sets up everything in a seamless way uh, and the last thing, star-studded cast of sort of minor a- a- actors making appearances. You have Lisa Kudrow as, as, as Amy's mum. You had Jason Sudeikis, uh, Will Ford, stuff like that. So those are really nice sort of established actors to, you know, fill out this cast. But it's very much Amy and Molly's film. They do a wonderful job. Go watch it. Yeah. Definitely a cut above your typical high school fair and
0: it has to be said we've talked about it for you know half an hour but there's so much stuff we haven't mentioned yeah. at all, and so many scenes that are brilliant and i don't want to mention yeah, exactly, you know, exactly. you, it's, so, it so uh, even though we've have spoiled one kind of element of it which kind of you can sort of see coming yeah like apart from that there's so much stuff we haven't talked about so please feast your eyes basically when you go and see it yeah definitely Okay, perfect. Moving on from that, uh, we were very, very fortunate
1: this week to have uh, Mr. Stephen Slater come into the studio. Uh, my, I myself interviewed him. He is an archival producer for Apollo Eleven, which is is a documentary coming out later this month about the moon landing. It's a brilliant interview. He's really engaging. He has a lot to say about both the documentary and what happened in
0: 1969. I hope you guys enjoy it. Awesome. It's also worth mentioning that this movie is going to be out in the picture house very soon. Yes. Um, Yes. Go and watch Apollo Eleven. There. Right. We hope you enjoy the interview with Stevens later. Okay. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. I'd like to know
1: what you feel uh, as far as the responsibilities of representing mankind on this trip. That's uh, relatively difficult to to answer a job that, that we collectively said that, that was possible and we could do and, and of course the, the nation itself is
2: backing us so we
1: just sincerely hope that we measure up to that the whole apollo program was designed to get two americans to the lunar surface and back again to earth safely the the enormity of this event is something that only history will be able to judge. Apollo 11 has very simply been given the mission of carrying men to the moon, landing them there, and bringing them safely back. You can feel it okay, like in here when I'm here with the uh, wonderful Steven Slater. Who is an archival producer and cre- part of the creative force behind Apollo Eleven, which is a new documentary coming out next month about the moon landing? Hello, Stephen. Hello, good to be here. Thank you so much for coming into the studio. I'm looking it's a pleasure. Forward to, looking forward to this interview. Do you want to uh, do a sort of brief introduction of yourself? How you got into the film and sort of your career so far?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm. Um, I suppose I'm known primarily as an archive producer in that my speci- speciality is finding archival footage for films and i've tended to work on films which require a lot of archival uh, material so based on historical events such as the the hillsborough football disaster um, i did a biography of uh, george best soccer player um soccer as they say in in america (laughs) and um and obviously primarily my focus has been the uh space program and the moon landings as a specialist in that department. But I did start out as a filmmaker and needing to make films that relied on that kind of material led me into those specialist areas. So it's a, a filmmaker first and then specialising towards the archive.
1: Oh, amazing. And so what kind of films were you trying to set out to do before you started this stuff? Was it sort of similar to the sort of documentary format? Yes,
2: yeah, so I've, well, I've always been very interested in documentaries. Mm-hmm. I've always liked science but really the storytelling is the most important thing can you tell a good story and that goes for any kind of film
1: and sort of in regards to moving on to the project apollo 11 how did that sort of come about what was the beginnings of that because obviously it's come out 50 years since the moon landing uh, was there a sort of aim to get it out by this year or was this something that's been building for quite a while
2: Yeah, I mean, it started, actually, we'd done a short film all about Apollo 17. Mm -hmm. This is with CNN Films and Statement Pictures, a company I've been working with, who were based in New York. So the short film was a 30-minute thing that told the story of our last landing on the moon, It was in 1972, just using the archive from the mission. So no narration, no interviews with the astronauts or controllers, as it happened, kind of feel experience. And because I'd, I'd endeavoured to, uh, it's quite a long story, but the 16mm film that was shot in the Apollo mission control rooms, uh, particularly from Apollo 11, I'd take it, uh, taken it upon myself to try and add sound to this by manually lip syncing the audio loops to the footage, so pouring through hours of film, trying to work out what was said when. Um, and so I went to the director Todd Miller and said well I have all this material for Apollo 11 could we do something for the 50th anniversary which is coming up and this was in early 2017 five months later we stumble across this incredible cache of 70 millimeter film in the National Archives and that makes it what was from my perspective a relatively small film that, that might have a um, online home or CNN broadcast into what's now uh, a featured documentary with a worldwide cinematic release and an IMAX release, giant screen release. So
1: was that just sort of a case of good fortune or did someone bring that footage towards,
2: uh, to you? Uh, was it from the NASA vaults, was it? Yeah, it just fell off a lorry. It fell off a no, lorry, No, yeah. No, no it, it, we, we were um, going into a lot of detail to try and get all the best so essentially, when, when you're shooting on film, you're always trying to track back to the source and find the source reels, because they were all the, ne- well, you would often refer to them as negatives. Mm-hmm. But, but, but the, the long, I suppose the, the same principle applies in that you're always trying to work with the best material, mm-hmm. the most original material, and that, we knew that was in the National Archives, in, in which is a, the end repository for any film underwritten by the US government, and that's in Maryland in uh, a huge repository there so so we've been basically we've been looking to get the best versions of this existing footage and then the, the archivist there said to us by the way we're not sure if you're interested in this but we've just there's 165 reels of 70 millimeter film and we wondered if you'd be interested in them some of them say apollo 11 about a third of them say have apollo 11 on them and that was the sort of red rag to the to the bull
1: oh fantastic and I mean having watched the film myself now uh, the fact that the archival footage is so unadulterated you just sort of let it speak for itself in most regards was that always an aim that you guys set out for because of course there's no narration here there's no talking heads there isn't your sort of traditional beats that you have for a documentary sure. and so sort rather of than the mission control narration and i think is it walter krondyke who's says a few lines yeah, as a, a news anchor you did voice really, of america the voice of america indeed something along those lines exactly uh well of course that was yeah. the only kind of sort of proto-narration that you had was that always a name you guys had let the sort of footage speak for itself or?
2: yes uh, and, and that was something that was pioneered with the, with the Last Steps film where but, but there is a kind of narrator in that uh, there was a man actually sat next to the flight director in mission control called the public affairs officer so he would come on the air to uh, this feed went out to the world uh, of the astronaut's voices and he would cut in to say this is Apollo control at uh, 304 hours and um, we, we can Neil Armstrong is now going into the uh, lunar module, so so that we can use his voice as a narrator.
1: Oh, lovely! I I think it does really keep the momentum of the film going. Uh, moving on from that, of course, we kind of know what the outcome of of the lunar landing was. No, we don't. We don't. Uh, no, 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 we don't. Uh, as many as we were saying before, conspiracy theorists might say otherwise. But uh, were you sort of aware or keen of the fact of creating some kind of manufactured tension in some of the scenes it feels as if you know certain shots do give that impression even though of course we know what's going to happen was that something on you or
2: the creative team's minds or? I, I think the music played a big part mm-hmm. in that the, the tension of the music i, I don't think we ever we, other films which i personally would not rate very highly um would do things like when they were when the crew had a series of uh, program alarms during yeah. the descent that will just show Consoles in Mission Control blinking with lights and uh, Mm -hmm. mayday, mayday, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And our uh, major focus is always historical accuracy. We we need to get it as it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we don't want to mislead people. Well, we don't (coughs) want space nerd people saying, oh, that was coming back to say, oh, that shot's wrong. They didn't shoot that. That's from another mission. Do
1: you, do you feel as if this was sort of a, a project for, you know, aficionados of that or was it always planned for a more general audience? Because I'm very much a layman in this regard. I don't know much about space, space exploration, but I did get a lot of insight from the film. Was that educational element always something of a concern as well? Or?
2: But that we we were worried it would only only appeal to a small audience. Well,
1: no, no, because I feel
2: as if it it, it it did not. But
1: you know, of course, in trying to keep accurate to that kind of stuff, as you mentioned, you have those sort of fans who are like, oh well, that isn't quite the way it should have been. In that in that regard, did you sort of have historians on hand to to help with that? Or?
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm one of them is me, yeah, and then if... uh, there's another technical consultant called Robert Perlman, who, who's probably forgotten more about this kind of thing than I would ever know I mean, my speciality is the archive side of things he's, mm. he's much better with probably with what the spacecraft is manoeuvring how, how it's behaving or something like that so we'd make sure that was accurate oh, okay. uh, but it was yeah I, I I always thought it would tailor to a large audience particularly when we found out about the 70 mil footage which was just um, I, I can't really describe how unprecedented and amazing that was to, to find out about that that just was a godsend that we found that
1: was the 70 mil footage more of the stuff regarding sort of you know the uh audiences looking on missions control sort of footage looking at that or was it sort of other stuff in relation to the actual
2: um launch so you know what what you mean what what exists in total or what
1: what was the new stuff that you sort of were able to uncover and sort of add to the film
2: well the, the most important Tranche of that material was filmed during the launch scenes. Yeah. I think you probably, having seen the film, mm. you'll realise that the first sort of the first act in three of three, in a way, is the uh, launch day and yeah. all the crowds, build up, and then yeah, that ends with the launch. So that's the most spectacular material that that I, I'd say is the most impactful was for me because once they get into space you gotta remember that they they didn't have have those cameras on the spacecraft but then and then we kind of come full circle at at the end when they when they splash down on the recovery ship that footage is just beautiful it's amazing
1: yeah i particularly love the the actual liftoff because as, as you recommended to me to watch it on a big screen which i'm so glad that i did it's like a volcanic eruption that goes on underneath the rocket it's that visual splendor as you're surely aware is is gorgeous i mean this is the kind of film that you kind of have to see in a big IMAX cinema would, would you not agree
2: well i think it's very good in in a normal cinema as well and if in the uk your chances to see this are going to be mainly in in normal cinemas yeah. but yeah imac it's amazing i've seen it once in imax in the smithsonian in, in washington dc that was it was amazing
1: i because as i was saying to my co-host uh last week as we were mm. watching amazing grace we saw a trailer for the uh film and even from that trailer after having not seen the film yet i was sort of taken away by those uh visual elements so moving on to your role in particular so you were of course sort of responsible when were you not for the sound synchronization of that footage to make sure that it was Dubbed over correctly.
2: Well, uh, more m- most specifically, it's the sixteen millimeter film of the of, in the control room of the yeah. controls. So, anytime you see a controller speaking, it's yeah. because I've manually lip synced to the audio.
1: So, so w- was that a particular labour of love, or did yeah. it become quite? Was there any moments when it became a bit difficult, a bit sort of really tedious to try and find the exact clipping that would, would work over this this footage?
2: Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's uh, to coin a phrase actually from Blackadder. It's a bit like trying to find uh, a small bit bit of hay in a massive stack full of needles (laughs) so yeah very time-consuming and probably the only kind of thing you could do if you had um, have no social life as I don't so
1: were you doing it by yourself or did you have a team helping you or no
2: you wouldn't you couldn't no no one else would have the patience to (laughs) sit with me doing that well are you quite meticulous about it or it's it's, 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 it's just one of these things that it's hard be hard to explain to someone else yeah you've got a certain way to do this and but i must say so so that's to answer your question that when you see people talking that is that's my my work a lot of the other stuff with the rockets taking off and stuff is the work of a sound designer (laughs) there's not a single bit of sound in the film that was actually recorded with 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 the footage it's all either added later or created
1: so, how much sort of creative license do you have in relation, to sort of, the director, the sound engineer, in choosing, you know, what footage works? Because, of course, there might be, I, I assume, some certain situations when there might have been decisions made about what goes where. Did you have sort of say in that? Was their discretion on your part,
2: or? I I, I would advise ultimately, Todd Miller, the director, mm-hmm. will make the decision, or he may be forced by I say forced. That's not, not probably a good diplomatic way of saying it, but he would be uh, he, he would take notes from executive producers and the production partners primarily I suppose my role would be to correct something if it was wrong so yeah. I, I'd advise to not um, we can't use that shot because that didn't happen or
1: so, so you were sort of assembling the chronology to it as well in, in that regard as in making sure things were consistent in relation to how they happened in real life or was is, was there kind of some mix around there
2: I'll, I'll give you a good example when they're on the surface, uh, Richard Nixon, the president at yeah. the time, called the crew. Well, I say He called the crew. They patched him through yeah. to the astronauts so he could speak to them. And the way that was originally, his voice had effectively gone up to the moon and back again. Yeah. So it was quite badly garbled. And we were using it like that in the film. And I, um, there was cleaner recordings of him, sort of like like this. Yeah. Well, not quite that clear, but talking into a a microphone on his desk effectively so so it would be making a suggestion actually no we shouldn't use the yeah. garbled audio we should use a bit cleaner audio in, yeah. in their regard but yeah. then there would be a there might be a counter argument that well it doesn't sound like it it sounds like doesn't sound as uh spacey if yeah, that makes sense so, course, yeah. so so these are little discussions that we'll get involved you you, you in, have to make those those decisions mm-hmm. about
1: what you want as clarity as in comparison to authenticity Um, did you and the creative team have any kind of influences, inspirations in terms of editing? Because I know... Having watched the film myself, now I, I, I got strong invocations of 2001 Space Odyssey and that, that sort of the way that it was shot, the the trip Odyssey in that regard. And having looked at some of the brilliant reviews, my ad, someone cited Woodstock, Scorsese's Woodstock editing. Was was that something in your mind when you when you guys were creating the film? Or? The answer
2: is um, Kubrick filmed the whole thing. <laughs> Kubrick faked the moon landing. Um, we, we were always looking for him in the back of the shots. No, it, it's it's um, no, it's eerie. It's eerie that it, it, it's so similar to the, to something that's uh, f- was filmed a year earlier by by Kubrick. But I suppose it's a lot of it's because the qu- equipment they were using was very the seventy mil mm-hmm. cameras etc were um, were the same. Something like Woodstock, I know, was Todd Miller would be the person to speak to, but I know it was a, was an influence. This sense cinema Verita Would you yeah, call it cinema,
1: cinema um... Verita Yeah, I think right. I think I think that's the phrase. I was going to bring that up. Do you? Would you ascribe the film with that label? Or well, do you tell me what? Well, I you're the expert. No, I certainly I certainly found it to the the case, but of course, you know. Uh, you, you're sort of using the archival footage in a certain way that sort of is telling that journey. So it, it does have, have those labels to it, but I was just sort of curious if that was something in the your mindsets when you were making it, or it was just sort of an after effect uh, to, to the visuals.
2: Well, it was always the plan to do this without narration. Yeah. Uh, no, actually doing that is, is very hard because actually what you probably don't realise is that once they get into space, particularly there is not all that much material to work with. So you have to be quite creative with how you can use certain things. And and not everything was filmed, so you have to use certain things representationally. uh, Mm. But I'd say it was was always the the aim to try and do it like that.
1: Yeah, and sort of in relation to the kind of um, line-drawn diagrams that were sort of signpost each individual scene about how they would um, launch back up and uh, similar sequences, were those done afterwards or were they um, footage found along with? The other stuff that you did those are
2: newly created yeah. animations. but having said that they they did take inspiration from another nasa film at the time which did use that similar animation style so they're, they're designed to be even though they are new animations they're designed to so emulate yeah yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah perfect i, I really like that because I, I i do think it fits very much with with the style um you said that you were going through a lot and a lot of footage um how much sort of ended up on the cutting room floor in terms of editing because
2: well there's a nine day version of this film in something uh, on the timeline with the audio I mean because you've got one thing you've got to remember is that the audio there's an audio loop running through the whole mission and there's eleven thousand hours worth of audio um, 30 ch- actually no sorry sixty channels of audio that um, a colleague of mine Ben Feist in Canada actually corrected all of that so this is um, without wanting to bore your listeners um in the control room, all of those guys you can see, it basically gives you access to all of their headsets. So you have a multi-track session of the whole mission. And then, so that's the audio element's massive there. And then it's a case of peppering the um, 16 millimeter and TV and all that kind of thing as to when it happened. But I'd say hundreds of hours of of footage to work with, but not as much from during the flight. As I say, (laughs) it's like the 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 most numerous material was shot on the ground but even 70 mil i mean we think if you think about it uh, the, the reels are actually quite short because yeah. i think it's only 10 minutes per reel um it was expensive yeah it's not uh it's not it's not as much as you might think put it that way did you sort of i'm guessing
1: you went through the nine hours uh, nine days worth of footage yourself have you gone through all
2: that with someone else or as in, well we, watched... there's no one the, the, there actually isn't a human a lifetime would not be long enough to listen to every single channel for the whole oh, thing. Wow. We have to sort of go to areas that we think, like the landing, or you know, we, we're not going to spend hours listening to the sleep period on day three. Of course, yeah, yeah. Although although it might be that something interesting happens that we don't know about. You see, it's it, there's still stuff to be found. There's just not enough time and resources to for... I suppose you need an army of people going
1: through it. Well, you guys have done a wonderful job in what you've selected. I got a really really good sense of, of, of what was happening. Okay. Um, were sort of, of course, you said that um, was it. Todd Miller as a director um, has that kind of final say, but were there any kind of particular scenes that you or someone else was pushing for that didn't end up... Because, of, of course, you're saying that all this footage ended up with audio clippings, but were there any kind of extended sequences that were omitted
2: in the end because they didn't fit with the film's feel or... I, I um, I'm i not going to say I pushed for it, but a lot of that mission control footage from during the descent and landing, I had synced that, I had synced that up so you can see them responding to the alarms, you can see them saying, oh, we, we roger, we copy you down and that kind of thing. And Todd Miller made a creative decision to stay on the spacecraft for that entire landing sequence and none of that. Obviously, made it into the film, but I completely agree with that. I mean, it's more, I think it's more dramatic. What did you think? Uh, no, I, I really liked it because I, I
1: like the kind of balance that was found between mm. the actual. was it, So it's uh, Buzz Aldrin, uh, Neil Armstrong, and is it Michael colin if I remember correctly, are the, the three astronauts? No one ever remembers him. Yes, yeah. Uh, well, perhaps for his namesake, but um, uh, those three i I like the time spent with them but i I did enjoy the mission control scenes because it it, it is a very concerted effort and i think the film really does bring that across you know you have those dozens if not hundreds of uh, technical uh, staff working in that room um so i really enjoyed that so thank you so much for curating those scenes um just as a sort of wider point moving on from the film uh, i know we kind of spoke about this as we were talking just before the interview films in relation to this kind of genre space exploration films whether they're documentaries or sci-fi um, i'm sort of thinking specifically as we were saying of first man or even stuff that's a bit more fantastical like interstellar how what's your sort of view on them in light of this do you feel as if there's an absence of in uh, authenticity that kind of detracts from your experience or is it something that just you take your mind away from the factual element and just enjoy the spectacle
2: well, I, I think certainly with First Man, it, it's hard to watch that knowing what we know uh, about the. You see, for me, seeing Ryan Gosling suiting up is is as wonderful as it is. Is not as powerful as seeing the real Neil Armstrong hmm. um, suiting up um in in 70 mil yeah <laughs> but then I suppose I would say that but no they're trying to the, the answer is they're completely different films trying to do completely different things and I don't I don't say that one's better than the other it's um more a lot more people are going to see a movie like that than would see a documentary although we're doing our best to get this to as wide an audience as possible of so of course um so just on the tail end of that uh what would you say is your I mean
1: I guess outside of your own film um, your favourite movie on space exploration?
2: Well, I, 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 I've been doing some other interviews recently where people have asked me what what got me interested in space exploration. I think a very big part of it was seeing Apollo 13 at the cinema when I was eight years old. And that was in 1995. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah that really got me um, got me hooked.
1: Uh, any more recent releases, or is, is that the one that's lasted in your memory? Do-
2: documentaries or fiction?
1: Oh, Eva! I'm always uh, ready for some recommendations.
2: <laughs> um, I like a documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon, which told the astronauts' stories. Uh, it was the 12, not the 12 men who walked on the moon, it was nine of the astronauts who have been to the moon. And that's more of their, um intersperses their memories with the, with the footage. It's very nicely made, very nice music. Um... I have put that um, up there with, with the best space documentaries I've seen. Fantastic. I'll definitely be giving it a watch. Um,
1: I think we'll end things there. Thank you so much uh, for coming in for this interview. Uh, do I you mind telling telling me uh, what date the release is for the UK uh, release of Apollo 11?
2: June the 28th. Uh, it'll be in cinemas. And uh, there is actually a shorter version, IMAX version, which you can see at the Science Museum at the moment. But I, I'm, I'm obviously all more for people seeing the longer version of course yeah um, it'd be great if, if, if the longer version was in IMAX I don't know what the plans are for that the so moment.
1: just just uh, at the end of this did they what did they emit from the IMAX version was it sort of some of the footage that you found later or was it just it's, I mean, it's a condensed version okay.
2: of, but it, I guess if you're going to the science museum for the day and you've got kids and stuff you yeah. probably don't want to be sitting, sitting for an hour and a half of
1: course oh, that, that's brilliant um, just uh, moving on from that just slightly uh, the the Apollo 11 screening will actually be happening at uh, Picture House, Phoenix Picture House in Oxford, uh, which happily sponsor this show. So big thank you to them. It was a nice little plug. hope you didn't mind the interview ending like that. But uh, do go see the film there because they have an amazing screen, completely ready fit for an experience like this. Uh, thank you once again so much for coming in to have this interview, Stephen. Uh, it's been really, really illuminating. And thank you for making
2: such a brilliant film. I had a
1: great time watching it.
2: Well, it was me and a lot of other very tons of people course, yeah. so i'm not going to take sole credit for no, it but you're here today just, so 90, thank you just 90% half. of the credit yeah, oh, yeah. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you so you, much thank for coming you, Matt, okay
1: Matt, uh, thank you everyone for listening and do tune in to next week's episode
2: bye cue the music
0: you've been listening to oxide film thank you and good night